the National Archives podcast series, Britain and the Challenge of Fascism, Saving Europe at a Cost. Presented by Jeff Stewart, Chief Examiner of GCE History at edXL. The current spec that most of you are doing is obviously appeasement itself. British foreign policy in the 1920s and the 30s. The new one, and we have this rather provocative title, deliberately, Saving Europe at a Cost. And I'm going to return to that at the very, the very end. Because I think there is a case, despite what Professor Stevenson has said, that Britain really became dependent on uh, American aid, that it was the Red Army that tore the guts out of the Wehrmacht. All true, as the Russians themselves said. Um, the British gave time, the Americans gave money, we gave blood. Well, I wouldn't deny that. But the fact remains that without Britain and the decisions that Britain made in 1939 and 1940, the whole world would still have been very, very different today. Um, had Britain not declared war in 39, and even more, decided to continue the fight in 1940, then undoubtedly um, America would not have been involved at quite the same time. The Red Army would very likely have gone under, and we would be living in a very, very different Europe and a very, very different world. And it is worth remembering, it is only Britain of the big three that actually declares war on Germany. Um, in the case of Russia and the USA, it is Germany that declares war on both. The decision, in other words, is not made by America, by the USA and the USSR. It's made by Germany in those cases. In our case, the decision was made in London. Britain, for whatever reason, miscalculation possibly, as Professor Stevenson has mentioned, decides to go to war in September 1939. And I want to address the syllabus that I'm responsible for, which deals with the foreign policy that leads up to that. Now, there are four basic bullet points on the existing spec, and I want to really look at each, each one in detail. First of all, bullet point one, the 1920s. British foreign policy, 19. 19 to 1933. And if I say so, it tends to be dealt with very, very unsatisfactorily by students. They can usually handle appeasement very well, support for opposition to appeasement. They find on the whole this period of the 20s very, very difficult to cope with. Making all sorts of glib generalizations, making mistakes, maybe it's, it's just too confusing, I don't know. But let's just try and sort out the key features of British foreign policy in these years. Disarmament, for a start. There was a question on this year's January's paper on disarmament and the League of Nations as being the two key elements of British foreign policy in the 20s. Uh, undoubtedly, disarmament is dramatic in the 20s as far as Britain is concerned. I mean, if you think 1919... Britain has the largest air force on, in the world, the largest navy in the world, and the third largest army in the world. By 1932, what's happened? An air force inferior to the Italian, to the French, uh, a navy which theoretically is the, still the biggest, in practice 
many obsolete ships and certainly inferior in many respects to both the American and the Japanese Navy and an army reduced to being a colonial police force in which the, the country which had invented the tank and led the experiments in tank warfare have really abandoned these and abandoned any idea really of organising armoured divisions. So disarmament was a real, a major reality of the 20s. And I noticed, just remarking some essays uh, yesterday, various students had argued that Britain strove to maintain her naval supremacy in the 20s. Well, she didn't strive very well. Um, she managed to get the Japanese rather reluctantly to concede uh, American and British superiority. In practice, of course, the Japanese achieved superiority in their key area of the Pacific. Britain stopped building, um, essentially, in the, in the 20s, and the Navy was left to show the flight around the world. The Americans continued to improve and build rather superior battleships, as did the Japanese. So, disarmament was something of a disaster. The Air Force, of course, you could buy a Sopworth Camel fighter, I believe, for less than £50. They were just flogging them off. And you could buy a trainer, it was set, I think, for fiver. Uh, it was amazing. You know, the whole Air Force just destroyed, sold off in the, uh, in the early 20s. And the result, by the end of the 20s, Britain could barely defend its own territory, let alone this vast empire. By comparison, of course, the French did not seem to have subscribed to disarmament in quite the same way, but in reality had decided to spend their money rather on defence than offence. Nevertheless, the fact that Britain disarmed is perhaps not too great a disaster in the 20s. Because the key thing perhaps to face up to, ask yourself, was there a real threat? Who was a threat to Britain in the 20s? Who was threatening Britain? Um, if the British Foreign Office surveyed the world, who was actually going to threaten us? The German fleet was rusting at the bottom of Scarpa Flow. The American fleet was a little bit ominous, and after a brief flurry of panic about possible American intentions, um, Britain relaxed and decided that America wasn't too big a threat. And especially after the Washington Naval Treaty, relations uh, remained fairly, fairly, fairly reasonable in America. The French were irritating, but apart from the odd panic over possibility of a French Air Force attack, the most part it was realised that we don't have to worry too much about the French. Right, what about the Russians? Well, nasty communists plotting the revolution. Um, were they threatening India? War panic briefly in 1926-27. Look that closely, not a great reality. Um, certainly not a friendly power but given the state of Soviet Russia and the Red Army, after the, certainly after the defeat in Poland, not a direct threat to Britain. Japan, potential threat, but Japan in the 20s was relatively quiescent. It was only in 1931 and the sudden burst of aggression in Manchuria that you can see a, a, a real change in Japanese um, ambitions, which might possibly threaten Britain. Only perhaps in 1934, 
with the Japanese threat to Shanghai, can Japan really be seen as a very, very dangerous threat? So, the 20s, or Italy, the one I've left out. Mussolini, a friend. Excellent relationship with British Foreign Secretary Austin Chamberlain, personal relations, spoken of well by Churchill. Here is a, a world, in other words, survey the major powers, no real threat. Disarmament's okay, the ten-year rule can be stuck to. Remember this, the important ten-year rule. No war for ten. Let us work on the assumption every year there won't be a war for another ten years. And of course, the man behind this, Churchill, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, a solid supporter of it, um, the man who was to later criticise the so-called appeasers, Churchill is the biggest supporter of the ten-year rule in the 90s, as Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1920s. And for the very good reason I've said, there is possibly no great threat. The League of Nations, a convenient cover, perhaps again, for disarmament, for Britain's ambition to be left in peace. How far the government themselves, the Foreign Office, felt great enthusiasm for the League of Nations is quite different, but the public certainly acquired a considerable enthusiasm for it. And the perception of government and public as to what the, how useful the League of Nations is was to cause <coughs> trouble, of course, to some extent in the 30s. And how, how much genuine support was there in government foreign office circles for the League of Nations? Uh, it was a convenience, but how much real enthusiasm? Possibly Ramsey Mack and the, some of the Labour Party, but one suspects that British diplomats <coughs> were far from enthusiastic. Nevertheless, it, it was a convenience, I'd say. What did matter was the actual pressures of an overstretched imperial presence and, of course, the demand at home for increased welfare, spending, education and other factors. Here is a Britain that is, in fact, not willing to engage in the arms race that preceded the First World War, if it could possibly help. Therefore... The 20s and 30s face up to the fact, the, sorry, 20s up to 1933, disarmament is acceptable because of a lack of a threat. Let us then change at what point does a threat begin to emerge. The policy has, has, to, has to develop in a different direction. Initially, the change of Japan's behaviour in the Far East begins to send shockwaves through the British defence establishment. And it's interesting that the first real sign of rearmament is not to do with Europe, but in Singapore. The massive build-up of um, the defences of Singapore. It's only really by 1933-34 as it becomes clear that Germany, under Hitler, is beginning to commit herself to a major rearmament programme, although initially in secret, then, of course, the famous 1934 um, Joint Intelligence Committee report, Germany should be seen as the ultimate enemy. That's 1934. And it's at that point that the government have to face up to the fact that we've not only got Japan to worry about in the Far East, but a, a threat in Europe on our doorstep in the form of Germany. Unfortunately, the following year, Mussolini becomes a more of a so by 1935, we have three potential threats. Japan, Italy, Germany. 
This then leads into the question of, once again, how does the public and the government perceive these threats? One of the most interesting developments is the fact that the government recognises probably the right of the biggest threat to Germany. The public, by comparison, tends to see very much much more dramatic uh, threat in Mussolini because of the events in Abyssinia. And you end up with a certain discrepancy between government and public. The government, on the whole, perhaps keen to appease Mussolini, who they see as not a threat, and the public keen to stand up to Mussolini, who the government uh, don't wish to confront. And we end up, hence, the terrible cock-ups in 1935-36, the Hohenlaval Pact, where the government, trying to do a deal with Mussolini, find themselves embarrassed by a French leak. The minister has to resign. The government has to pretend that really it is doing something and hence sanctions are imposed on Italy, which a government really doesn't support. So, again, an area that you might like to explore, the difference between public opinion, not pro-appeasement when it comes to Italy, very pro-appeasement when it comes to Germany, uh, and a government which perhaps feels that the priority is ultimately the other way around. So the relationship of public opinion and government is one of the central themes. How far did governments listen to public opinion? It is a regular question on many, many A-level papers. And it's one that's not done terribly well. Obviously, a central example of this could be the 1935 general election. You have a government knowing that it has to rearm against Germany, privately admitting this. In public, refusing to come clean until the election's over. As soon as the election's over, Baldwin, perfectly happy to um, commit himself to some modest degree of rearmament, but totally unwilling to do what many people feel he should have done, go to the public in November openly, we need to rearm. He doesn't, he fears it might hand the election to the Labour Party, who are still campaigning very, very much on a peace platform. Uh, and of course, one of the great indictments, possibly, an ironical indictment, of course, of the guilty men, is that they don't come clean early enough to what they know secretly they've got to do. Rearm. I think one of the areas that, on the whole, tends to be very well done on the Edexcel paper, the opposition and support for appeasement. The support for appeasement is overwhelmingly well done. People seem to be able to trot off endless reasons why um, appeasement was popular. We get the usual things, you know, the student, the, uh, the Oxford Union debate in 1933, the Fulham by-election, um, the Peace Pledge Union. Most candidates seem to be thoroughly aware of the evidence to suggest that there is support for um, appeasement, Position to rearmament. What's less well known is the opponents, the early opponents of appeasement. Churchill is obviously the most famous. From when? The odd thing is, here's Churchill, the man who's been banging the drum for the ten-year rule in the twenties. When does Churchill start banging the drum for rearmament? From really, from 34, 35, he, he clearly begins to commit himself to rearmament. But who else? Can you think of any others? No other name. From where? Again, interesting. Interesting point. He even is somebody who later made a name for himself as a man who had opposed appeasement. 
And he, he's, you're right, he acquired that sort of reputation. Don't forget, he was actually a member of the government until February <coughs> 1938, Minister of League of Nations and then Foreign Secretary after uh, Horace resigned. And got hit. the interesting thing with Eden, of course, what he resigned over was the issue of Italy and the question of lifting sanctions on Italy. And on the strength of that, made a name for himself as an opponent of appeasement. In fact, it was a more detailed thing to do with Italy. Any, any other names? Go on, cartoonists. Probably the most famous cartoonist of the David Lowe. You look at the low cartoons of the, of the 30s. But he's on his own. Don't forget, you look at old, older cartoonists like Bernard Partridge, and they're still very much trotting out pro-appeasement cartoons. Lowe stands out as a rather singular example. Any other opponents you can think of? Well, there's one group, perhaps not to be taken too seriously because they were a minority. The only people to really oppose Munich. Well, the communists. Up until, of course, the Pact of 1939, the Communist Party and the extreme left tended to be very much to be opponents of appeasement. They wanted the official lines from Moscow, we need a united front, all good lads should stand up together against the fascist bastards, and we should be in there sort of opposing Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco. But, in other words, what you've got is a weird mixture. David Lowe, Churchill, uh, General Edward Spears, ex-General Edward Spears, um, and the Communist Party. Fringe groups, actually, in society. Openly opposing appeasement before 1938, but not many. But I'm always surprised at the lack of names, other than, it's interesting, it's usually everybody can mention Churchill. Some mention Eden. Um, occasionally you mention Lowe. I don't think anybody's ever mentioned Edward Spears, uh, who actually was an MP, had been a liaison officer with the French army in the First World War and was to be liaison with the French in 1939-40 again. So, be able to address that issue. Why was appeasement supported? Why was it opposed? The whole Munich Agreement of 1939 is a regular topic of the questions. Basically, was it a mistake? This year's paper, for instance, had Chamberlain displayed uh, a sensible realism in his conduct of the Munich negotiations. How far do you agree? And the answer, of course, is there is very little consensus amongst historians. And what I want to put up here, this comes from the new spec, um, but it, it is absolutely relevant to what you do. Germany's takeover of Czechoslovakia robbed the Allies of the Czech army of 21 regular divisions, 15 or 16 second-line divisions already mobilised, and also their mountain fortress. According to Generals Halder and Jodl, there were but 13 German divisions left in the West at the time of the Munich arrangement. We certainly suffered a loss through the fall of Czechoslovakia, equivalent to some 35 divisions. Besides this, the Skoda Works, the second most important arsenal in Central Europe, was now at Germany's disposal. There we have the traditional criticism of the Munich Agreement from Churchill in his book in 1940. And don't forget those famous words of Churchill, Neville will come very badly out of history, I know, because I should write the history. Well, Churchill there is writing the history. But this is the Churchill critique from his famous 
2001 and the Second World War, what was wrong with Munich, and you can see it, gone. if you were to summarise it, what's the, what's the argument? What's Churchill's argument? Uh, they've lost the valuable ally. You've lost, the Czechoslovakia is a valuable ally, um, you've lost the equivalent of 35 divisions. And, uh, and go on at the end, you've handed over <coughs> what? Industrial power. Yeah, a lot of industrial power. Texas, Skoda, the second biggest arms centre in, in Europe, has been handed over to the Germans. Uh, so this is a disaster. We've lost a major ally for no gain at all. You know, so it's a serious argument. It's an argument that people would still may very well use today. The other thing, by the way, famous Alan Taylor view from 1961, please note, we'll go from 1948 to 1961, the thing at the top should say the origin of the Second World War published in 1961 has got cut off. But if you just a quick read of that, look at Taylor's defence in a rather perverse, difficult Taylor way of um, the Munich Agreement. The settlement at Munich was a triumph for British policy, which had worked precisely to this end, not a triumph for Hitler, who had started with far less clear intentions. Nor was it merely a triumph for selfish or cynical British statesmen, indifferent to the fate of far-off peoples, or calculating that Hitler might be launched against Soviet Russia. It was a triumph for all that was best and most enlightened in British life, a triumph for those who had preached equal justice between peoples, a triumph for those who had denounced the harshness and short-sightedness of Versailles. Well, what's now? What's he saying? Why is he saying that uh, we should celebrate Munich as a sensible, fair... What, what is his defence of? Quick summary. Churchill's is a hard-headed... We've lost a valuable ally against the dangerous enemy. What's Taylor saying? Is he saying it was good because it showed that um, British politicians weren't too um, proud to make changes to Versailles? Right. We're making changes to Versailles, which ultimately we all agree is what? Have we? Unfair, yeah. It's all that's best. Here is mo a moral foreign policy. Here is Britain being moral. Forget the realpolitik of Churchill, we're losing a few divisions or a bit arms factory. We're being moral. Germans living in Czechoslovakia are being allowed to become part of the right which they apparently want to be. This is utterly moral. People are choosing the triumph of democracy, the triumph of uh, Woodrow Wilson's principles of 1990. It, this is, she's putting right the, some of the mistakes that have been made in 1990. So it's a different argument. And then a more recent kind of uh, Churchillian view expressed by the late 1980s by a historian who's still around and still writing, John Charney. Just have a quick look at that. Unlike Churchill in 1938, Chamberlain had knowledge of what passed for the French war plan and of the latest report of the British Chiefs of Staff. The French plan was to wait behind the Maginot Line until the British had expanded their army and the economic blockade began to bite. This was not a strategy that promised speedy relief to the Czechs, as the Poles were to discover a year later. The chiefs were adamant that there was nothing that either France or Britain could do to prevent Germany from overrunning Bohemia and inflicting a decisive defeat on Czechoslovakia. 
Britain was still a year away from... Okay. Britain was still a year away from when her rearmament program would be Britain was still a year away from when her rearmament program was be substantially completed. Britain was still a year away from when her rearmament program would be substantially complete. The omens for war were not good. Now, what's his argument for again, defending Mossad, defending Chamberlain? That is really my realistic position to interfere. And that ultimately the Czechs wouldn't want. Okay, Churchill said we've lost the value of our life, but but what would have happened in 1938? In other words, there was nothing we could have done. Absolutely nothing we could have done. Um, As he said, Chamberlain did know that the French had no intention of attacking, which is the only way you could possibly have saved the, the Czechs. Uh, the Czechs would have been defeated anyway. It just meant a lot of Czech soldiers had been killed. Prague would have been bombed. What would have been achieved? Nothing. Um, so you've got three arguments there. Churchill, we lost a valuable ally. Taylor, repeating what many felt at the time, is only fair and proper. Germans <coughs> have been allowed to join Germany. And John uh, and Charlie arguing, well, there was nothing we could have done anyway. Therefore, Chamberlain was right to try and get a peaceful settlement. Now, can I say, usually at this point, what you expect is somebody come along like Professor Stevenson or me in some role of the chief and say there is an answer. Well, there isn't. Uh, There's still a major debate. People are still, it seems to me, totally divided what would have happened had there been a war in 1938. Interestingly enough, Hitler went to his grave arguing, saying, I wish I'd started in 38, I would have won. Churchill banged on about saying we should have started in 38, we wouldn't have had a major war. Now, they both can't be right. And quite honestly, it is very, very, people who play war games have attempted to try and work this out. It is not easy to see what exactly would have happened. And there is solid evidence to support both the Churchill viewpoint, it was a mistake, and the Charmley viewpoint, well, there was nothing we could have done. And it was on the balance sensible. And all you can do in an essay is know the facts and argue. And I don't care as a chief examiner what conclusion you reach. It's perfectly valid, you know, either. This, by the way, is something that Churchill didn't mention. But it was something I, I was struck by. I just finished the book on the fall of France and Dunkirk. And what is amazing is the fact that a third of all German modern tanks were Czech tanks in 1940, when the Germans defeated France. One third of all their tanks were actually Czech tanks. So in that sense, Churchill was right. It massively strengthened Germany. Maybe something, I'll I'll return to this in in a minute in the last section. Supporting John Chalmers' viewpoint, yes, it is true that in 1940, 38, the Royal Air Force was not ready for war. Five squadrons of hurricanes available, none Spitfires. And uh, the situation certainly had massively improved by 1939. There you see the hurricane and the Spitfire. Don't forget, it is the hurricane, as Professor Stevenson said, that was to be perhaps the more important aircraft. But there were only five squadrons of those available in 1938. And that's it, no Spitfire. By 1939, 12 months on, 
I think it was 21 squadrons were available, and by 1940, considerably more. So, Charmley is saying, yeah, time was useful for rearmament, and of course, the famous radar, not fully deployed, long way from being fully deployed in 38, only the Thames estuary covered. By 1939, the whole country is covered, and there is some hope of defending against the bomb. So I'm just putting those points to you. That here is a debate that's been going on since 1938, and I personally, I don't know what Professor Hewson feels, is there a consensus today to say, was Chamberlain wrong, was he right? You can certainly say that he felt he was perhaps overconfident in his ability to extract a deal, but on the other hand, you, you certainly can't say that he was wrong to avoid a war in 38, when it is possible Czechoslovakia would have fallen, France would have been attacked 12 months earlier in 39, not 1940, and maybe the consequence would have been the loss of the war. We just don't know. It's just one of the mountains. So there is the third bullet point in our syllabus, Munich and the realism or not of appeasement in 1939. Can we come finally to the last of the bullet points, the actual run-up and outbreak of war? And you get regular questions on this, of course. Why did British government change? Public opinion changes. Members of the cabinet change. Halifax changes, too. And the key being in March of 1939, there is a newfound confidence in the armament. Uh, it hadn't been there in 38. All the advice to Chamberlain in 38, don't fight. By 1939, there is a widespread view that we have a good chance of winning. Now, can I say, I, I, what I wanted to address in, in this, which I think from a slightly different viewpoint than has been dealt with before, is all our view of what happens in 39 is conditioned by what happened in 1940. Now, in 1940, the French army collapsed in a matter of weeks. The Germans attacked on 10th of May. Uh, France signed an armistice on the 21st of June. France fell <coughs> in six weeks. And this produces the guilty men that hold the indictment from people like Michael Foote, which is a bit rich, given the fact that the Labour Party had voted against any rearmament all the way through the 30s. But nevertheless, the indictment of the guilty men in 1940 is a consequence of the fall of France. And the myth developed, Britain was massively unprepared, and this is the fault of the appeasers in the 30s. Now, what strikes me, if you actually look at the situation in 1940, you know, we, th we focus on our weaknesses, on the French weaknesses, the British weaknesses, the lack of an anti decent anti-tank rifle for the British forces, the slow Matilda tanks. The fact is, in many ways, the British tanks and the French tanks were superior to the German. We've often quoted as a complaint of Montgomery, who was commander of one of the British divisions in the BEF, uh, about the transport, the lorries available. And in fact, what's unique is that the British actually were the only fully motorised army that existed. The bulk of the German army relied entirely on horses, just like that in Napoleon. The Germans had a tiny percentage of their army motorised. The vast bulk relied on horse-drawn transport. It was much more antique than that. the British army or even the French army in some respects. When the Germans attacked France in 1940, 
the bulk of the senior German generals expected to lose. As it happened, they won. Mainly because the French made a massive cop. But, you know, at the time it wasn't obvious. Many, many people felt the odds favoured the French and British in 1940. When the British were finally driven out of France and uh, abandoned their vehicles, their equipment on the beaches of Grand Dunkirk, uh, Bock, the commander of the German Army Group in Army Group B, looked at the equipment and commented that we could only dream of equipment like this. Far from the German army being kind of superbly equipped compared with the British, in many respects the British were far better equipped than the Germans. The velocity of British tank guns was better, was higher than that of the Germans. The armour of British tanks was thicker than that of the Germans. Um, French tanks were on the whole of Charles B superior to anything the Germans had. You know, this idea somehow that the Allies were massively inferior, that Britain had neglected and rearmed, is just what we do. The British Air Force had developed already a series of very fine modern aircraft. Some things were inferior. The, the Blenheim, uh, the Fairy Battle, unfortunately named, doesn't sound too French, um, was, of course, the already obsolete by 1939. But Already new bombers were on stream coming into, coming into play, far superior to anything the Germans were. We had already prepared to develop a heavy bomber, uh, the Lancaster, which of course made Halifax, which the Germans were never to get an equipment to. So the idea that somehow in 1939 we went to war unprepared, totally unprepared, which became a myth, a widely held myth. If any of you ever see the old film Dunkirk, which was made in the um, I think about 1960, uh, it was one of the central characters in that says, oh, even if we have to fight with our bare hands, we'll go. And this implication is, you know, we've got no proper equipment. But this is, in fact, a nonsense. Yes, there are all sorts of inadequacies, all sorts of things not right, but that was equally true of the German army, if not more so. It was true of the French army, again, um, if not more so. Chamberlain and the British military chiefs took Britain to war in 1939 because they made a perfectly rational calculation that they thought they could win. They were not foolish in this because the German general staff shared their assumption. Holder, the, the German chief of staff, thought when they attacked France they would have a 1 in 10 chance of winning. He said, we've got no choice, we're just going to take it. I don't expect us to win. So, you know, the Germans shared the British the German, from the pessimistic point of view, shared the optimism of the day. And, you know, I'm willing to say, as it happened, he was wrong. So, a series of military mistakes in 1940 ensured that the Germans themselves were surprised, amazed by the speed and ease of their victory. And, of course, it then led to all sorts of discriminations in Britain. It confirmed Hitler as being right. Um, in fact, he made a gigantic gamble which happened to have paid off. So, bear this in mind whenever you look at the reasons behind the declaration of war in September 1939. The cost has been partly touched on by, long term costs have been partly touched on by Professor Stevens. It is a central issue in the new syllabus. For you, it is something that worth worth thinking about. 
the controversy, what was the effect of the Second World War on Britain? Um, and th this would be about a, a typical question that you might ask yourself. You know, was, it, was its results positive or negative? And you can find, again, historians who will argue both ways. There's a very, very famous argument from Alan Taylor in his Oxford history, arguing, you know, almost very positive that the war had a positive effect on Britain. Britain emerged from the war a much better place, more equal, uh, her economy more modern, old industries had, or I've been allowed to die, but new industries had sprung up. Against this is a very devastating critique from a modern historian, Corelli Barnett, in a famous book of 1986, in which he points out really what Professor Stevenson hinted at earlier. Britain is only able to keep going because of the Americans, and what emerges is an economy geared totally to war, not geared for coping with a peace world, relying entirely on lend-lease and American aid. If that is withdrawn, we face absolutely appalling situation, which is, of course, the situation in 1945. And, you know, a rather nice picture, again, from Lowe, uh, who, although sympathetic to the Labour Party, does recognise um, the very, very shaky foundations of the British economy in 1946. And there's the trades union movement demanding improvements in welfare, this and the other, without the actual economy to support. The Britain that has emerged from the Second World War is in no position, really, to launch into a full, almost welfare revolution. So, ultimately, was, I mean, I think it's one of the great questions, was Britain right to be First of all, to declare war in 1939. Secondly, perhaps even more controversial, was she right to go on in 1940 when she'd lost her ally, the French? In one sense, these, it seems to me, were heroic decisions. Now, it's terribly unfashionable today. I believe it's quite incorrect, politically incorrect, almost to focus on moments of national glory and um, we shouldn't perhaps, we're not told we shouldn't celebrate moral judgments uh, of the past. But it does seem to me that Britain, the British government at least, made two decisions, first in 39 and then in 1940, which did change the nature of the world. And of that we should be proud. And I, I always think back to those famous words of William Pitt when he talked about the uh, conflict with Napoleon. Just, he said this just before he died. You know, Britain has saved herself by her own exertions and will, I trust, save Europe by her example. Well, in 1945, Britain had saved herself by her exertions and a bit of help from the Americans, and she had saved Europe by her example. And in that sense, Britain had saved Europe, but at a terrible cost to the economy and her position in the world. This event was recorded live on the 13th of March, 2008, at London South Bank University. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.